will join me please in Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, we'll be looking at verses 24 through 38 this morning as we continue in our series through the gospel of Luke. And our sermon this morning is entitled, Denial and Error. Our key words for our worshipers in training are greatest, servant, and kingdom. One of my favorite stand-up comedians is a guy by the name of Kevin James. And Kevin has a great bit where he tells a story about going on vacation with his friends. And all of his friends gather around and they want to go jet skiing. And he says it this way. He says, they asked if I wanted to go jet skiing. I've never been before and I should have said that. But they said, you want to go? And I said, yeah, I'll go. I'm good. And he goes on to tell the story of how much of a disaster it turned out to be. And that's probably funny to us because it's very likely a familiar situation in our lives. We make outlandish claims, we make huge promises, we commit ourselves to something that in the end we're not able to back up. I'm guessing some of you men in the room could maybe identify with this a bit. Every now and then men have a tendency to display the, this kind of neurological disorder when talking to their buddies about playing sports. All of us are the very best at our particular sport of choice. But 99 out of 100 times, we cannot back it up. It just so happens the day we finally get on the field or the court or the course, we just cannot perform according to our repeated claims to the best of our abilities. And that day that you're playing happens to be the day when everything just goes wrong. And you see, that's funny because we can relate to that. But far too often, this is the same kind of situation in our spiritual lives. On good days, we feel strong. We feel like spiritual champions. We've had a great time of Bible study. We've had an intense morning of prayer. We've overcome serious temptation. And we say in our hearts, I'm a great disciple. I can withstand the powers of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But then it doesn't take long for us to once again be reminded that we are prone to fall. We're prone to fail. We're so incredibly prone to succumb to our weaknesses, to find ourselves flattened by our inability to live up to all that we've claimed. Because we forget the very present reality that I am unable to do anything in my own power. It is all of grace. It is all of Christ. We forget the warnings of the Bible, that our pride very quickly leads us to a fall, and that we should take heed when considering our weaknesses and failures of others because we are just as prone to the exact same sins. It's an ever-present reality in the Christian life. We so often neglect to remind ourselves of. And so often we're left in the aftermath, shaking our heads, wondering about ourselves. Why did I say that? Why did I think that? I should know my own heart better than that. Well, in this morning's passage, we can imagine that the disciples would have looked back on this incident before us with a similar self-examination. What were we thinking? How could we have 
thought that? How could we have said that? What pride, what arrogance, what misunderstanding, what foolishness on our part. And as we look at our text this morning, we need to recall the context in which Jesus and the disciples find themselves in. Remember, we looked last week that they had just finished their Passover meal in which Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. He had visibly and verbally proclaimed that his blood would be shed and his body would be broken for his people. And he had, prior to that, served his disciples by by washing their feet. And then he announced that among them sat the betrayer who would lead Jesus' enemies to the garden where he would eventually be captured prior to his erroneous trial and crucifixion. Remember last week we highlighted Jesus' words in verse 15 of chapter 22 when he lovingly and graciously and mercifully and joyfully said to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He loved the disciples and he opened his heart to them that they may enjoy all of the benefits that Christ offered in his death and resurrection. And something else I want us to see in this overall narrative is how it changes in terms of the development of Satan's tactics. And that's really our focus this morning. We're going to see it in three ways in which Satan seeks to destroy the work of Christ. But, but look with me here in chapter 22, a few different things that Luke points out. Way back in verse 3, we read, Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. And then in verse 22, we see the inevitable results of the relationship that had been sealed between Satan and Judas. It says, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. The betrayal is through the temptation and the leading of Satan. Matthew and Mark both record Jesus saying, It would have been better for that man had he not been born in the first place. And then in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. He has gone after Jesus. Now he's going after the disciples. And how does Jesus describe it all in this narrative? Verse 53, Jesus' enemies come to arrest him, to take him away. And Jesus says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. But you see, Satan's tactics are changing just in this one chapter. At the beginning of the narrative, Satan wants to prevent Jesus from going to the cross because he knows the end. He knows what's coming. But by the end of it, he's so overcome with his evil that he doesn't care what it means for him. He wants to pressurize Jesus to the cross, not as an act of his obedience to the Father, but because he is so intent to destroy our Lord by the power of darkness. You see, in these final hours of Jesus' life, there's an all-out assault on Jesus And the two greatest protagonists of the gospel are now seen face to face. Jesus, God's king, and Satan, the prince of the world. It's all part of the bigger picture of the Bible. 
The promise of Genesis 3 is about to be fulfilled. The world has continued to see this ongoing conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, but this conflict would now come to its climax when one particular seed of woman would face down the serpent himself and the serpent would bruise the heel of our Savior while our Savior will wonderfully crush the serpent's head. And it's all coming to a climax now. And the covenant of grace is about to come in full fruition. So let's begin reading in verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves." You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now surely we know that Satan hates everything that Jesus loves, and he seeks to destroy all of Jesus' purposes. Now, one of the most effective means for Satan to do this is through destroying those whom Jesus loves. And we need to get that because Satan has numerous tactics that we're going to see here to pull down the people of God. And we still see today these very same tactics that we see in our text this morning. I really want us to get in our minds that these aren't things that Satan has stopped doing. These are three very powerful methods he uses because they keep being so successful. As you read through the New Testament, you see it. As you read church history, you recognize it. As you live life as a Christian in a member, in the membership of a a local church, you experience it. So why should Satan change his tactics? They're so successful at displaying his hatred for that which the Lord Jesus loves most of all, namely his church, his bride. And here we see in this text, Jesus has begun to form this little church, his, his little church family, the disciples. And Satan is immediately intent on destroying Jesus' fruitfulness by destroying those he loves. So we see his first strategy here is to divide the disciples and destroy their fellowship. And this is almost unbelievable given the context, isn't it? They've just shared the Passover meal. They've just heard from Jesus who's instituted the Lord's Supper. They just had the King of Kings, their creator, on his knees before them, washing their dirty feet. And they've just heard the Lord say that one among them is about to betray him. And so what do they decide to argue about? They want to know who among them is the greatest. Imagine that. 
Imagine even in our own context, if, if after a worship service, we all walk out and stand out in front there talking, and two of us begin to argue, I'm the greatest. It's, it's just insanity. Even more so because they were so serious. And sadly, this wasn't the first time this happened in the Gospel of Luke. Remember, the very first time Jesus announced his going to the cross, the disciples had the very same argument. Who among us is going to be first? They thought Jesus was bringing a physical kingdom. They thought they would be his generals in that kingdom, and they wanted to know who would be the greatest. What a shameful display of the self-focus of their hearts. And in this moment, in this hour, we see a time of greatest need for unity among the brethren. But what do we see instead? Division? Argument? Self-serving, self-righteous gloating? And Jesus rebukes them in verse 25 and following. He points out that the mentality of pagan lords was to domineer and practice excessive selfishness all the while giving themselves pleasant, supposedly humble titles. They call themselves things like benefactor or your grace or your royal munificence. And Jesus is is pointing out here that the future kingdom would not be like the delusive authority of earthly kings who practice dominance and demand lordship over the people. And this is what the disciples assumed. They couldn't have been more wrong. Jesus' kingdom would be made up of those who are as the one who has just served them. That phrase, one who serves, Jesus uses it three times here. And in this passage is the language describing the service of one who comes to wait on tables, a table waiter. So what is he saying? He's he's saying to his disciples that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of people who live as Jesus lived. Not as one to be served, but as one who serves. They couldn't have had a more vivid display than what had just happened in his washing their feet, serving them the covenantal meal, and yet they're still holding themselves up in very high esteem. And it was here among the disciples that Satan found his landing ground. He he found a way to divide them, and in so doing, discouraging the heart of our Savior. You know, I, I think Christians often assume that Satan maybe has some kind of compassion, and he he only attacks us when things are the greatest for us. He sort of sits back and waits for us through our suffering and our hurting, but when we're in the greatest moments of our spiritual walk, that's when he seems to come after us. But his attack on Jesus here is a clear indication that that is no way the case. Satan is not a friend of those whom Jesus loves. He hates us. Have you ever sat with a Christian as they're on their deathbed And heard what they're struggling with in their final hours. So often, it's them remembering the sin of their life. So often, it's a struggle of assurance. 
Because even in the very last moment of a Christian life, Satan continues to antagonize. Even in our greatest suffering and sorrow. So you see, in blessing, in struggle, he will persistently seek to devour us. And in this instance, he seeks to divide the disciples and to discourage the Savior. And he's been doing it ever since the Garden of Eden. Remember, Adam and Eve fell as Satan spoiled the best thing that the Lord had given to them. Communion with him and communion with one another. And then he spoiled the family when one of their sons killed the other. And all of it continues to unravel from there. And brothers and sisters, we cannot be naive. We cannot forget that the only thing that holds us together is the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of us in this room right now have absolutely nothing in common other than that we are sinful men and women who need a Savior. And Jesus has rescued us from the slavery of sin and death. Now, some of us may have similar interests. Some of us may have some commonality in certain areas of life. But some of us may not only be on separate pages about certain things, we might be in a completely different book. But here's the most important thing. We're able to come here and not just tolerate one another's preferences. We're able to come together in love and peace and unity and joy and actually look forward to seeing one another because we have the most noticeable commonality among us is that we need constantly a dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ who has saved us and set us free. And if you're not delighted to walk through those doors on the Lord's day to see your brothers and sisters gathered to worship our Savior, then you don't understand what Christ has done. You may be buying the lie of Satan. I'm the greatest. He loves me more. I have better ideas. My hobbies are better. My clothes are better. My children are better behaved. My marriage is more successful. My job is more important. How easy it is for us to lose the mindfulness of what the Lord Jesus has done. And when we do that, it's very easy for Satan to divide us. Do you know why churches really split? Why God's people divide from one another? It's because in those moments we are so willing to listen to the lies of Satan. My way, not yours, mine. I know what's best. You see, so often division in the body of Christ isn't really about philosophies of ministry or theological disagreements or a principled stand for truth. They're really about taking our eyes off Jesus, who's the lifeblood of our salvation. And when you hear about churches dividing over the color of carpet or groups of churches dividing over non-essential issues or Christian families pulling away from one another based on where they send their kids to school, or elder boards dividing over one or two not getting their way. Be assured, it is not over something that the Lord Jesus makes to be an issue of utmost importance. It's over a mentality that comes from a heart that says, me first. 
Your opinion, your idea, your feelings, your character, your reputation, right now it doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is me. That's what's going on in the hearts of the disciples. And that is so often what goes on in our hearts when we take our eyes off of Christ. And if you haven't seen it within the local church, surely you've seen it within a family. In the most simple way we've seen it in a family, how a me-first mentality works. You ever, you ever seen a family at the supposed happiest place on earth? Disneyland? Everyone is supposed to be smiling and singing. It's a small world after all. Having a great time, pretending like they don't have a care in the world. But how many out of a family of four or five does it take to make the whole entire day a complete disaster for everybody? One. It only takes one. It takes one to say, not you, but me. And we're so prone to point at toddlers and young children and say, yes, they tend to do that. They walk around Disneyland crying their eyes out because they didn't get their way. But are we immune to the very same thing? Surely we do it all the time. We do it at work. We do it in our homes. We do it in the church. I didn't get my way, so everyone else is going to be miserable with me. It happens when we go quiet and we don't talk to anybody else around us. It happens when we make a really big deal out of a really small issue. It happens when we begin to say mean, unloving, hateful things to others who have different opinions than us. It happens when we slander others or gossip about them. And it just takes one person. And when it happens within a church, it's deadly. And all it takes is one of us to divert our eyes from Jesus and begin to say, me first. And then the rest of us can easily be drawn out to take our eyes off of Jesus as well. So we can respond, no, not you first, but me. You see, the only reality that unites us is that the Lord Jesus is protecting us and causing us to persevere, that we learn the way to stand firm against the evil one and to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and to put others first, to live as one who serves. Satan doesn't relent, but does that mean we divert our eyes? You see, it's here in this text that Satan comes after even our Savior. No doubt in this time he's conveying to the Savior, you thought you, you want to save this bunch? All it took for me was to move into the room. Ah, Jesus is so close to the cross, and yet his most intim- intimate followers were so far away from him in spirit. How disheartening it would be for our Savior. And yet how gracious he continued to remain. Dear child of God, what a great blessing to be reminded that even in our most foolish moments of life, the Lord calls us to himself and reminds us that we will eat and drink at his table in the kingdom of God. We're so unworthy. Let's look now at the second tactic of Satan to discourage Jesus and to defeat his great work. Verse 31, Simon, 
Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. The upper room, so festive, tables, candles. A few minutes before, such a joyful occasion, but now it's dark and somber. The betrayer has gone out into the night, awaiting the right moment to trap Jesus. Shameful dissension has broken out over who's the greatest. And denial and failure was about to come for the most unlikely of all the apostles. What more could happen? One of Jesus' most trusted disciples, one of the inner circle, his most enthusiastic supporter vowed, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And yet he will succumb to the most cowardly denial and infamous failure. There's something here that's not obvious to us in the English text, but, but a truly southern among us will appreciate how I say it. The word you in verse 31 is used twice, and in both instances it's written in the plural. So it's Jesus saying, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you all. I can hardly even say that. And he might sift y'all like wheat. I prefer you guys or all of you. But when you're in Rincon, you do as the Rinconians do. Interestingly, though, Jesus then shifts his focus in verse 32 to the singular you. Doesn't that remind us of Job 1 and 2? Satan speaks to God and says, Look at Job. The only reason that that Job loves you and stays faithful to you is because you've made him prosperous in life. You've taken care of him, his good health, his good family. So what does God do? He allows Satan to put Job through the mill that he might attempt to sift him like wheat. But you see what Luke's showing us. Satan not only seeks to bring division He also has in view the bringing down of a disciple who loved Jesus dearly. And for all of Peter's shortcomings, it could never be said of him that he didn't love his Lord. So Jesus says, Peter, Satan wants you all. And I've prayed for you, Peter. And how does Peter respond? In essence, he says, I don't believe that's true, Jesus. That will never happen. It can never happen. Once again, we're reminded of the great exhortation to take heed lest we fall. Peter still didn't know Jesus how he should know him. And he surely didn't know his own heart how he should know his own heart. We can relate to this. Imagine if I was in public somewhere 
I didn't get good customer service. I started ranting and raving and throwing a fit, yelling at the clerk, asking for the manager, making a scene, demanding that I get good service. And the manager shows up and takes one look at me and says, hey, aren't you the pastor of Ephesus Church? So what do I want to say with everything in me at that point? I'm caught. The spotlight is on me. It's time to respond. So what do I say? Well, you know what I say. No, I hear that guy is much better looking and incredibly humble and sacrificial. (laughs) Do you know your own heart? Do you know your own weaknesses? Jesus is looking right at Peter and telling him, Peter, you're going to deny me when the spotlight is on you and when you're caught, when they know who you are. This is the same disciple who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And in only a matter of hours, he will say, I have nothing to do with this man. But you see, Jesus is using Peter in a special way as he is with all of the other 11 remaining disciples. And all he is breaking loose to destroy his purposes. So what do you do? How would we counsel Peter so that we can counsel ourselves? What do we do in those circumstances when we discover that the evil one is in our midst and we are starting to believe his lies? He doesn't care that you say, well, I am a faithful member of Ephesus Church. Or you say, look, I've done all of these wonderful works. None of that is going to deter him from putting his finger in your chest and saying, you call yourself a Christian. Look at your sin. You should be ashamed of yourself. Do you feel the weight of guilt? Do you feel the sting of the nails that are being driven into Jesus' hands and feet? Do you know how guilty you are? You know why that's so effective against us? Because every bit of what he says is true. We sing a song called Before the Throne of God Above, and one of the lines in there speaks of the evil one. It says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Yeah, what he says is true. But what do you say? This is one of the most prominent experiences in the Christian life, isn't it? That we get to a place in our sin and we say, I'm not a Christian. I I can't be. My sin is all over me. I keep doing what I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. In fact, I'd say if you don't have that experience, it's very likely you're the one who should be wondering if you're a Christian. So what do you say the next time Satan is whispering in your ear and lurking at your door? What should our brother Peter say? Satan, Jesus said he would pray for me and promise me that my faith will not fail. There is a future with Christ. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8, who will condemn us? When Satan stirs up the embers of our guilt in our conscience and, and reminds us, in your sin you are condemned. Our great hope, our great security is that he who loves us and died for us also intercedes for us. He who crushed the serpent's head will bruise Satan's head under your feet also. 
Jesus is stronger, even with Satan comes with all of his tactics against us. Now, finally, the third of his tactics we see here as well in verse 35. Jesus said to them, when I sent you out with no money bags or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell the cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It's enough. The third thing Satan does is that he seeks to blind us. To make us forget what the Lord has done. To make us unable to see what he is doing. Jesus is telling the disciples, Don't you remember how I've provided for you before? But now, even more so in this hour, this is a time of crisis. This is a different day. And all of the artillery of Satan is coming for you. This is the time for all of the equipment that you can find. If you don't have your sword, sell your cloak and buy one. But he's saying the situation has reached its climax. And the disciples still don't get it. They're slow, just like us sometimes, right? Is Jesus telling them to prepare themselves for physical warfare? They think he is. They respond, Jesus, we have two swords right here. But what's Jesus' point in all of this? They don't get it, that this is a spiritual battle. Our battle is not with flesh and blood. We cannot make the mistake that if we just wrestle flesh and blood, then the gospel will begin to flourish. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is not winning the day through social activism or political involvement or organic diets or holy war or Fox News or anything like that. It's not something we can engineer through our own efforts because it's spiritual. It's a work of God and it's at his prerogative. And the disciples didn't understand that. And so often we don't understand that because we want to be engineers of gospel transformation instead of proclaimers of a gospel that transforms. But the battle is not with flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. And the Lord is the triumphant warrior that wins the day. The disciples didn't get it, so Jesus says, it is enough. It's it's like saying, I've had enough, or enough already. Today's vernacular, we might say, I give up. Just because Jesus is the Son of God doesn't mean he was kept from sorrow and disappointment because of the blindness of the disciples. Again, we can almost picture uh, Satan talking to Jesus here. What about this? You You don't want to die for these guys, do you? But you know the amazing thing is that he does because he loves them. Satan is saying, Jesus, these ones aren't worth loving. 
You've poured out yourself. They're not worth loving. After three years with you, they still don't get it. But Jesus, our faithful, loving Savior, says, I will love them to the very end. I will save them to the very end. And brothers and sisters, he looks at you and he looks at me, even in our most outrageous sin, our most foolish days of all the days of our lives, and he says, I love them to the very end and I will save them to the very end. I will not let them go. And friends, for those of you who aren't Christians, for those of you who do not trust in Christ, for all of your hope and salvation, do you see that what you're believing is the lies of the evil one? He's telling you that you can do it on your own. Your good deeds will be good enough. Your own efforts will be the right efforts. God is just going to overlook it all in the end. That's not how God works. His standard is absolute perfection. And the Bible tells us every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the penalty for every single sin that is ever committed is death. Not one of us can live up to God's standard. And so all of us are born into a life of condemnation. But God has made a way. And it's through the suffering Savior who loves his people to the very end. God the Father made Jesus the Son sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. My sin paid for in Christ, his righteousness given to me that I might walk in it and not be condemned on the final day of judgment, but victoriously and gloriously proclaim that I am Christ and he is mine. And brothers and sisters, these disciples of the Lord Jesus are the ones that he was willing to shed his precious blood for. Just like you are the disciples of the Lord Jesus that he's willing to shed his precious blood for. And it's our only hope. There's no way for us to withstand these dark powers otherwise. Satan divides. He seeks to sift. He tries to blind us. And Jesus himself is able to unite us, to pardon us, to open our eyes and to shift our gaze away from the world that we can be entirely fixed upon him. Him who crushed the serpent's head and will by his grace put the serpent under our feet as well. In C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, he tells of two things about Satan. The two greatest mistakes we make when it comes to Satan. First is that we don't believe in him at all. That he's just a fictional character. Or second, that he's a funny little figure in red trousers. And we have no sense of how dangerous he is and how much he has littered the church with division. And the way he keeps telling us, sinner, sinner, there is no hope. But for those in Christ, we can rest assured that while Satan's finger is in our chest, we have the Holy Spirit within us, reminding us in the word of God, pointing us to Christ, saying, yes, you are a sinner, but Christ is a great and mighty and faithful Savior. Do you ever think about the fact that Jesus is interceding for you? It's unbelievable. My sin my failure, the ways I've dishonored him, 
but yet he sits before the Father and intercedes on my behalf. And I know by his grace that I, that we as a family together might stand secure. This was and is the hope of those dull, self-centered, presumptuous, weak disciples in the upper room. And it's our hope as well. Jesus does it all. And he does it all for our good and for his great and magnificent glory. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the reminder that in our failure, in our weakness, in our falling, that you are a great, loving, gracious, merciful God who has sent his son Jesus to take our place in death and condemnation, giving to us his perfect righteousness that we might live forever and ever. And Father, I pray for us. I pray for your church here. I pray for your church around the world that we not be deceived by the evil one, that he cannot divide us, that he cannot sift us, that he cannot blind us, because our eyes are fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Keep us, O Lord. Keep us secure in Jesus Christ. Help us to overcome all that seeks to divide us, that you may be glorified in our midst. The gospel might be rightly proclaimed and spread throughout all the nations that they too would be glad in Christ. Father, fix our hope solely and securely in Jesus Christ. And Father, for those who are here this morning who don't know Christ, we pray, Father, that they would recognize that they have believed the lies of the evil one. We pray, God, that you would send the Holy Spirit to rest upon their grave and awaken them from the death that is theirs in bondage to sin. Make them new creatures in Christ, that you be glorified, and that they find hope in an eternal Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.